Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and today I'm joined by Pastor Greg Delaney, who currently serves as the Outreach Coordinator for Woodhaven Recovery in Dayton, Ohio. He's also a frequent collaborator on the faith-based initiatives with many local and state government recovery efforts. So, Greg, welcome. Oh, what a pleasure to be with you, Greg. Thanks okay. so much. All right. So you got into this because this story and the epidemic is, there's a personal side to that. Let's start there. Okay. Um, well, briefly, uh, grew up in the church as a kid, uh, never had any issues with substances or any of that stuff. Went to college, married my high school sweetheart, The you know got the house, the little American dream was doing well. Um, lost a job. And uh, went over and saw a friend and was kind of feeling bad about myself for getting fired. And he said, you know what, I got something just for that. And we drove down to the local drive-thru and we both got a 40-ounce bush light and went and drank it in his driveway. And I, I, there's significance in that day because I had never kind of considered alcohol as a means of dealing with problems before. And I can look back to that day very significantly to know that that introduced me to something that uh, I just wasn't aware of, that I could find a substance to help with my, my trauma or my, my things that I was dealing with. And so that led me on a very interesting journey of, of alcoholism. It uh, really was something that sparked in me that quickly. And for 15 years, I battled a, an intense alcohol addiction. Um, my job helped to contribute to it. I was a salesman, so I flew all over the world and there were a lot of opportunities for socialization, made tons of money. Um, and so it kind of just went hand in hand, the party, the drinking, the, the stuff. But eventually the drinking started to take over and become more of a priority in my life than my job or my, my family or anything. And so that progressed uh, to a place in 2008 after a bankruptcy, after some real other tragedy in my life due to my use. I almost lost my life in 2008 to addiction. Uh, my liver failed. Um, my wife, who was at the time the palliative care director for the local hospital, uh, was kind of put in a position of whether or not to resuscitate me or not from the, the failure of my liver. And so I um, had some wonderful doctors that figured out I was septic. And um, But my, my wife tells the story that she went off in the corner when I was in that state uh, from the, the, the addiction. And she said she went to the Lord and prayed to him and said, you know, he's tormented by this addiction. Lord, if you want to heal him, please heal him from this. If, but if you want to take him, you can take him. And uh, so that after 13 days in a hospital, I had a pastor come and visit me. 
and uh, bring me some different context. And it wasn't that I hadn't gone to rehab before. I had done four stints in rehab. I'd been detoxed seven times from my addiction. Um, but what he presented me was some hope. And he said that God still had a purpose for me. Uh, and God had a purpose for me to help other people who were dealing with addiction. And so it took me a year to physically recover from the episode. And so during that year, he hired me at his church just to volunteer and begin to uh, understand the addicted community and begin to work in that context. And so over the course of that year, we uh, started a ministry in Xenia and called, called Freedom Church. And we started having people just come and share the love of the Lord with them and uh, give them resources for their addiction. And then I was ordained into the ministry in 2009 in that church. And since then, I've just had a passion uh, these last uh, seven and a half, eight years uh, to continue to offer the message of hope that is the Lord, but at the same time begin to help the addicted community. So now, over the course of the last 20 months, you've been traveling the state mm -hmm. uh, along with the team from Mike DeWine's office, making a difference and using that passion and applying that to help people in the grips of the opioid epidemic. Tell us a little bit about what you've seen. Well, what I've seen is initially um, a real need for us to engage the church and talking about the church from a big C perspective. And so part of my assignment with Mr. DeWine was based on a very simple question that he had raised to some colleagues of mine and some partners of mine in the addiction space, one being the Refuge Ministries in, in Columbus, Ohio. And he raised the question of saying, what is the church doing to help us with the opiate epidemic? What is the faith community doing? And so we started in a, uh, on a path of, first of all, engaging the church community, uh, trying to get them around, creating some awareness about the problem. And so we would travel with Mr. DeWine, where he was kind of the lead speaker at a particular event or community forum. Then we would come along underneath that for uh, the, the audience that was there, which was usually we invited pastors from a particular community. And we would kind of pull those pastors, but share with those pastors about areas where they could begin to help in the problem. What is our role as the church to help in the problem? And so initially we were just looking for them to make themselves available to the communities. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we learned over the course of these 20 months is that many people in the addicted community view the church uh, in not so great light. They, they view the church as homophobic, as hypocritical, and as judgmental. And so if I'm in an addictive situation in my life and I see the church as those things, I'm not likely to engage them to help me with my challenge. Sure, absolutely. On top of that, you have all of the things that an addict does that they're ashamed of. Absolutely. And so in the church, some churches, it's a little bit of fire and brimstone, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the last place that you would think they would want to go. Right. And, and I think Mother Teresa might have said it best. She said that uh, if we're so busy judging people, we don't have time to love them. And so part of our message to the church has been to begin to understand uh, folks that are, that are suffering from substance use disorder and, and dealing with addictive issues, you know, are still people. There's likely uh, some, some very valid uh, reasons for their journey into addiction. And so how can we begin to provide uh, healthy, safe loving, accepting community within the context of our church that they can feel comfortable that they can come and be authentic, be transparent about the things that they're dealing with, but find a group of people who will, will love them, uh, not enable them, not, uh, not continue them on the journey by, uh, by what we call toxic charity or, or helping until it hurts, but rather being able to be truthful and loving them in the context of, of understanding, um, you know, that, uh, 
they they need direction, uh, they need uh, opportunities, and they need they need somebody just to be honest enough with them. But we also need somebody to journey with them. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that that I learned in my own addiction was that uh, you know having those accountable friends. Having somebody that was willing to to tell me the truth when I needed to hear the truth, but also walk with me and help me along the way was so important. And so what we've really tried to do with the church, Greg, has been help them understand what folks are dealing with when they're dealing with an addictive issue. So helping to break some of the stigma down, uh, changing some of the the preconceptions that the church folks have about those that are dealing with this, but then also inspiring them into their role as you know, they, they've been called to do, and that's to love the Lord and love their neighbor. And you found really just a fascinating, well, an outstanding vehicle to do that, and that's recovery churches. You found some programs out there that are working and working well mm-hmm. that you're bringing to Ohio, whereby you turn, uh, you uh, teach these seminars, whereby you bring together a number of churches and you'll share with them the concepts of how you would go about becoming a recovery church in whatever flavor you want. That's right. That's right. And what we've done is what we really try to do, to, to back up just a second, is, is not, not press a church into an area where they're not comfortable, but it, to look at their own folks and their own gifting and their own talents as a church and giving them alternatives that they can be part of the solution. And then we take the next step and we say, what do we have locally that's already helping the problem that you as the church can quickly partner with? So what we do is we'll bring in local mental health and recovery agencies, other people who are already serving this particular population. We bring those, in, those folks in to talk to those church leaders and those church members to say, okay, you don't have to go reinvent any of this. These folks are in the space doing wonderful work. They're going to tell you how you can, as a church, engage them. And then for those that want to become a recovery spot or become that off-ramp for those that are dealing with addiction, looking for ways to serve as a church, then we come in and in the last part of a workshop day and say, here are proven on-ramps for other, that other churches currently are doing. Outstanding. So in this half a day, yes, sir. Uh, a number of congregations, leaders of congregations come together and they learn about all of these processes that are in place out there and programs whereby you present it in such a way that it's almost paint by numbers. They can, for everybody has a role in this whole thing. We know that with the opioid epidemic. It's just a matter of finding the right fit, the right role for you. And they can get exposed to all of these and run with the right one for their community. That's very exciting. Yes, and it's, it's, it's proven to be uh, pretty effective. Uh, we've done it in probably 15, 18 counties so far. And out of that, we've seen some amazing things rise up. That is outstanding. So when's the next workshop? Well, I got one coming. Well, we have one coming at the end of, well, I'm sorry, let me back up. We have one coming about the second week of August, and it'll be in Tuscawaras County. Mm -hmm. Um, They've decided they want to do a two-day thing. So we're going to have a little music festival and then an equipping event that'll be tied to that. Uh, We're in conversations for uh, another one in September in the Van Wert area. Uh, We have one, another one coming to the Beaver Creek area toward the end of June. Um, We just finished one uh, on the 13th of May in Highland County, where we incorporated even some expertise from Talbot Hall at Ohio State Medical Center and Dr. Brad Lander, who's probably the preeminent uh, 
all kind of neuroscience uh, expert in in the state of Ohio when it comes to understanding the science and of the in, within the brain when it comes to addiction. He actually keynoted for that particular event. Um, so they they kind of pop up. We usually look you know to have about eight or ten weeks to uh, plan them and promote them, but um, we we put them on uh, really and, and customize them you know to the the demographic that we're serving as well as customize them to. Uh, the group of churches that are coming to say, you know, we've got this these sorts of uh, congregations coming. Let's kind of focus in these areas mm-hmm. because it might fit them better than others. Terrific. So who all attends these? Who would be the target audience for you for the ideal workshop? We have uh, pastors. Uh, we have those that are already dealing in the recovery community. Uh, we look to engage um, those uh, folks who are already a part of the space, so your mental health professionals potentially, social workers, um, lay leaders that have a heart for ministry. Uh, we also look toward, um, you know, folks that, that are also providing the services in the area. So we'll reach out to nurses. We'll reach out to, uh, um, you know, any of the, the mental health community as well, as I mentioned. So we really try to open it up to the community letting them know we're going to be talking about the opiate uh, crisis. When a uh, church congregation leaves this, leaves the workshop, um, how difficult or easy is it to launch some of these programs? Um, typically, it, it kind of depends on the on-ramp that they take. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, I'll give a couple different ones. Uh, if someone today wanted to start a Celebrate Recovery group, right, we would connect them to local Celebrate Recovery resources. And Celebrate Recovery is a 12-step uh, Christ-centered, faith-based recovery program. It uh, goes a year at a time. Um, it was birthed out of Saddleback Church in uh, the California area. Currently, there's probably well over 300,000 people that attend Celebrate Recovery meetings a week in the state of in, in the United States. Um, have multiple Celebrate Recoveries in the state of Ohio. Um, but the thing about them is it's a kit. It's kind of proven. It's uh, all the curriculum is provided to the church that wants to start one. What limits uh, somebody from doing Celebrate Recovery is I need quite a few volunteers. So smaller churches may not be a good fit for that. But a larger church that has uh, facilities and has quite a few volunteers, that may be a, an on-ramp for them. Can you qualify larger and smaller? What size congregation are we talking about? Well, probably for a, a solid Celebrate Recovery church, you probably need 250 to 300 folks attending your church in order for it to kind of work out. Those, And we have a lot of examples of that across the state of, of folks that are doing that. Okay. But it, it tends to be very, it's, it's paint by numbers, as you described, mm-hmm. and everything, including how you run a meeting, what the small groups look like, the whole thing is comes in a package, and so mm-hmm. that's one way to go. How many volunteers do you need ballparking oh. it for a size of a congregation, as you suggest? Oh, we, we have, so I'll give you a good example. We have First Church of Christ that's in my hometown of Xenia, Ohio, that mm-hmm. does a Celebrate Recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on their team, they probably have 20 folks. Uh, a okay. couple of leaders, some folks that have shared experience. That's another area that, uh, so if you have folks in your church that have been through recovery mm. themselves, they're good fits to help with something like Celebrate Recovery. Um, it's easily, you know, uh, searchable on the on the internet. Just Google Celebrate Recovery and you get a full rundown of everything that uh, it does and, and how to engage. But uh, from a uh, structural perspective, they're wonderful because they have regional uh, kind of helpmates and technical assistance to get you rolling. Mm-hmm. And so when we do one of these workshops, we'll bring one of those folks along, too, so that if a church decides they want to do that, they not only have the resources from California, but they have local resources that they can lean on to say, 
hey, I'm, you know, I'm kind of struggling in this area. How do I mm-hmm. get past this particular hump? Or what would you suggest I do here? Okay. So that's one. What um, kind of time to get that up and rolling, say, in that example? Well, in, in, the, in the Xenia example, it took them... Uh, it took them about nine months to get everything pulled together and get rolling. Um, now, that was more uh, a challenge of the infrastructure of the church versus the, the Celebrate Recovery piece. So, you know, you have your deacon boards and your trustees and things mm-hmm. that are just part right. of the church. Right. But realistically, I think if you look out there, it, you could get something up and running inside a quarter, you know, if, if okay. you got rolling, you know, and, and, and went at it aggressively, mm-hmm. I would think. So, and for Celebrate Recovery for example, in mm-hmm. Xenia, what mm-hmm. were the costs associated with that? Obviously, the church is going to have, you know, organizational costs, but the cost to bring the program in general. I, I can't speak to it specifically. Um, I know that you can go out on their site, the, the kit to get started. It's probably less than $1,000 to get rolling okay. um, to get the materials. And then it's ongoing material purchases and mm-hmm. things like that for it. Because the thing about Celebrate Recovery that's a little unique is it's not specifically focused to drug addiction. It's focused to anything that's a hurt a habit or a hang-up. And so they have groups on things like sexual addiction. They have groups on things like codependency. They have groups in addition to, you know, the things that are typical in terms of recovery-based stuff, addiction-based stuff. And so it's a little broader opportunity for a church to wade in. Yeah. Um, so depending on, you know, the number of groups that you have, you know, sometimes that can move your cost one way or another. You know, if I have, you know, 10 or 12 groups and need those materials for that. But some Celebrate Recoveries might have a main session group where we all get together, we mm-hmm. worship together, we have a lesson or a lead, kind of like an AA meeting, and then we break into groups where you might only have a men's group and a women's group if you have a smaller congregation, so you wouldn't have quite the expense with it. Got it. Okay. So now let's talk about one of the other programs, Prevention First. So Prevention First came to us with a ready-made uh, toolkit. And they said, here, we'll come in and train your churches in this. And so Prevention First at any one time can train up to five churches at a time, up to 30 people at a time. Uh, it's anywhere from 400 to $600 for that group to have a seminar. Okay. Uh, you finish about six days or six, six days, six hours worth of work as a part of the event. Uh, and you walk away with a flash drive of tools that you can incorporate into your current curriculum as a church or as a youth group. So I'll give you a good example. In the Dayton area, we reached out to our youth pastor community about a week ago. And we said, hey, we have this opportunity for you on your Wednesday night opportunities, your Sunday school opportunities. Would you be interested in a, in a toolkit like this? And they're like, yes. I mean, as long as it's not a curriculum that we have to wedge in to what we're already doing. Uh, but if it's something that we can incorporate and weave into what we're already doing as, as a part of our outreaches and other things, we'd love that. That's exactly what this is. And so what we've tried to do with all of these on-ramps and off-ramps for the church is, first of all, go find things that are easily implementable. And secondly, that have some evidence behind them as being effective. And so Prevention First has a fantastic track record in the faith community. And, uh, and what's interesting is that what they are doing satisfies some of the folks in the mental health and recovery community. And that has been a challenge for the faith community to get their buy-in for us. And so what we've done is we've kind of bridged the gap between the things that they demand, evidence-based, 40 yeah. developmental asset kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. with our messaging of sharing the gospel. And so those two things have come together in this uh, deal with Prevention First. And so now we're, we're partnered with them and willing to take them all over the state as a part of uh, these uh, workshops and, and equipping the church. Outstanding. So can you share with us some of the evidence 
you say the evidence base mm-hmm. of you know the program. So, do you have some stats to share with us? Well, prevention first works on the idea that so there's been a there's been a shift in the way that we talk to students about drug addiction, and so what what we try to do is we've had the just say no campaigns and mm-hmm. some of that, and and we have we've evident you know the evidence has said that that's totally not an effective way to go. Right. What Prevention First does is Prevention First comes in and starts to talk about, um, you know, self-regulation kind of ideas. How do I uh, make better choices when presented with these, you know, these opportunities? And so I would have to go to them to give you the the stats or the numbers or the data on that um, because I don't have that handy today. Mm -hmm. But the evidence of those kinds of messaging opportunities, those kind of messaging methodologies have proved to be intensely more effective, you know, for kids to, to not wade into, you know, drugs or wade into substance abuse in that way. Some simple things by just creating a culture of talking about it mm-hmm. and, and, and allowing the church to not feel like it's not their particular place to talk about addiction. Well, we've proven that just with like the Start Talking initiative that Governor Kasich has put out, uh, if I talk about drug addiction with my, with my kids or with the kids that I've been entrusted to in my Sunday schools or my youth groups, I have a 50% less likely um, opportunity to use or 50% less likely to use drugs. That's some of the evidence. And so what we've tried to do is mm-hmm. how do we start the conversation in these prevention contexts? And then how do we provide things that have been proven in other evidence-based things like mental health and recovery and some of the other um, prevention uh, opportunities have been going on for a long time and that side of the fence and with mental health services and those kind of things. How do we take those things that have been proven to reduce, uh, you know, reduce use among youth? And then all we're doing is incorporating some of those faith messages, some of the hope of Jesus Christ, some of those love things that, that he talks about into some of those proven ways to create messaging for kids. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. it gets tough. You know, what's been interesting, Greg, and this has been a challenge, that the traditional community, the secular-based community that deals with addiction <clears throat> is very data-driven, very evidence-driven, very— um, As uh, so, it should be, right. I think. The church is very anecdotal. Mm-hmm. And so the church, even ministries that are out serving this particular community of people, aren't big on capturing data and capturing statistics. Right. What happens a lot of times is when we're trying to merge these two things together, where we're trying to say, here's a best practice from the mental health and, and, and addiction community, the church says, well, that's not our thing. We, we do this Jesus stuff. And I'm saying, no, there's some great evidence that we can incorporate Jesus stuff into that. And so it's helping them to understand each other's language and then going back to the faith community and say, and as you implement these things, as you begin to incorporate some of these ideas into your uh, stuff that you're doing at your church, let's start capturing the data there, too. And it's not just about Johnny's doing better. What was Johnny like before? What did we use uh, to help Johnny get better? What, what's been Johnny's progress? And let's capture that data so that we can come back to them and say, yeah, this is really working and it's working in our context as well so that we don't make the mistake of using things that don't work at all. And so it's moving the church away that it's not just always about the story. Sometimes it is about how are we implementing the things that do work and how does that impact our data on both sides so that they so that we can come together and have a common language as we're trying to help populations. Well, I tell you, this is all very exciting because you just make this opportunity for any congregation to get involved and make a huge difference. You make that so accessible by giving them so many different on-ramps, as you call it, Mm -hmm. in these workshops. 
Um, any final comments for our listeners here? We've, I, I know we could go on for oh, yeah. quite a long time on this, but we kind of need to, to wrap it down. I, I really appreciate your time today. For, from Blaine. a pastoral perspective, you know, one of, one of the things that we have looked at the church is, is a couple of things I'll close with, is that the church has had a, a church big C, so the church globally, or not globally, but statewide, has struggled with engagement here because they can't quite understand what their lane is. And what we've really tried to do is simplify that for them. And so what we've said is, look, look at this in the same way that Jesus talked about feeding hungry people or giving thirsty people something to drink or visiting someone in prison. Uh, I firmly believe, and I say this at just about every talk that I do, that had Jesus come to Ohio in 2017, he would look at us and say, I was addicted and you helped me recover. And so can we look at this missionally? Can you look at this like, like you look at uh, helping folks in the Sudan? Or can you look at this as the way that you help, you know, uh, shoes for the shoeless? Yes, this is a community of people that need the church to engage them missionally. So that's one thing I would want you to take away. The other thing is, is that we all have a personal responsibility here. Uh, as it, from my perspective as, as followers of the Lord, we have a, an opportunity to minister. And I love what, uh, there's a quote by a guy named Henry Nguyen that says this. He says, ministry means the ongoing attempt to put one's own search for God with all its moments of pain and joy, despair and hope at the disposal of those who want to join in the search, but they don't know how. And one of the things that I have seen as, as an addicted person and as I've worked with addicted people is that there's a, there's a real desperation to find something else. And I believe in, in, in a pastoral context, we have something amazing, something else for them in our faith with the Lord, but they don't know how to do it. And so in our own journey is what we bring to them. And we say, look, it, it hasn't been easy and it, it has had hopeful moments, but it's had moments of desperation. It's had great success and it's had some failure. But you know what? I'm willing to share that with you authentically and transparently to help you get on your search with me. And you know what? We're going to do this together. And I think that is the key message to the church is to say on that individual responsibility, we want to find those things that you do well individually. And then we want to look at what your church does well collectively. And we want to give you on ramps for folks to, to, to be able to go on that search with you and to where they stop looking, us at, looking at us as so judgmental as a church and looking at us as a potential of a loving community that can help them get better. And I think that if we can do that, we, we have the most diverse and broad and expansive group of people in the faith community across the state. We, we have boots on the ground, opportunities for engagement, and it's just an understanding of how to do it. Outstanding. And we will publish uh, the information for any con where any congregation can get involved and find those on-ramps mm -hmm. so that they can get involved in the recovery effort. Yeah, and we'll provide all the contact information. We just flow it through me, and then we get you set up. And we really make it uh, local and make it personal to because every neighborhood's different. Uh, every uh, community's a little bit different. And so we want to make sure it's relevant and impactful to your community. Outstanding. We've been talking today with Pastor Greg Delaney, who serves as the outreach coordinator for Woodhaven Recovery in Dayton, Ohio, and is a frequent collaborator on faith-based initiatives with many local and state government recovery efforts throughout our state. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.